Welcome everyone to the CMSW Colloquium series continuing. Um, for those of you who've not uh, been to a colloquium before, welcome. Uh, we have an ongoing series every week. You can find all kinds of details about it at the URL up there. Of course, no colloquium next week because of the holiday, so enjoy the holiday. But we'll be back on December 5th um, for a kind of co-sponsored event between CMSW and Comforum that'll be on long-form <coughs> journalism inside the Atlantic with James Fallows and Corby Coomer. So it should be a really fantastic event. So check out the webpage for all the details. It's always Thursdays, 5 to 7. The room sometimes rotates. Yep, okay, so uh, for today, I'm really thrilled to uh, welcome and introduce an old friend, actually, Mary Flanagan, who's here with us. Um, I think many of you are probably familiar with Mary's work. Mary's the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished, it holds the Sherman Fairchild Distinguished Professorship in Digital Humanities at Dartmouth College. So she's actually just a few hours away, we've figured out, very quick on the bus to come down. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Mary's work, Mary is just a tremendously accomplished scholar, artist, and game designer. We're really fortunate to have her here. She holds uh, MFA and MA degrees from the University of Iowa and a PhD in computational media, which will probably resonate with many folks in this room, from Central St. Martin's College of Art and Design at the University of the Arts London in the UK. And Mary, in part probably why I'm so familiar with her work, Mary has long, long explored how human values are kind of at play in technologies and systems, whether that's looking at kind of virtual world systems or game systems. So she has this amazing body of work. Uh, I can't even begin to sum it up. I encourage you to take a look at her webpage or take a look at her Wikipedia page as well. But she's produced something like 20 major artworks as an artist. Uh, a number of them have exhibited at places like the Whitney and the Guggenheim to name, there's many, many others. She's the author uh, or editor of several books. Uh, I have a few of my own favorites here. I think the first one I encountered of Mary's was this fantastic 2002 collection. Nick is smiling probably in recognition. Uh, Cyberculture, Rethinking Women and Cyberculture, which re Reload, which has a lot of fantastic stuff on science fiction and cyberculture stuff meshed together. And then her 2009 book, which some of you may know, Critical Play, which really is a fantastic deep dive into a lot of her work and conceptual frameworks. So, she has this a tremendous body of scholarship that's worth taking a look at if you're not familiar with it yet. She uh, founded the Tilt Factor Labs in 2003, which explores, as, as it's put on the, their webpage, computer games, board games, urban games, and other software, and I love this bit of it, that fosters a joyful commitment to human values. I just think that's such a lovely framing. And the lab is really interesting, and in it's now 10-year existence really starting out with roots in kind of social commentary, op-ed pieces, and developing most recently into what she describes as data-driven and evidence-based work. So there's an interesting kind of uh, interdisciplinary also growth and transition of the lab um, that I'm sure she'll be happy to talk with us all about. Um, also, and I know she's going to talk about some of this in her in her presentation today, but one of the things that's really fantastic about Mary is she doesn't just produce things like this. She produces these amazing kinds of games that get ideas out and circulating. This is the first one I ever had of hers. It was produced with Helen Niesenbaum, who some of you may know at NYU, thinking about ethics and values in play. So I think she's also going to be talking to us about sort of some of the artifacts she's produced over the years. And then finally, the last thing I'll mention, as I said, there's many things you could say about Mary's fantastic work, but there's a, she has a new book coming out, co-authored, in fact, 
with Helen Eisenbaum called Values at Play in Digital Games, which I think will be terrific to see when it comes out. So I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. Great. So I'm really happy to be here. Thanks to y'all for the invitation. And I, I know so many characters in this room in different guises, so it'll be interesting to try to um, share my work. Some of you may have heard bits and pieces, and it's hard to get it all in one, one area. So I just wanted to, uh, first of all, just thank you for all coming, and, um, and also just ask a question about audio, because we, we do have some videos, and we, um, we have a little bit of an audio issue that may need to be... I may just have to, oh, I'm not going to touch anything. Anyway, <laughs> we may just need the moment of audio. Anyway, so that's great. Um, so I've, I didn't want to just do a big survey of my work because I think that it takes a long time and it's um, uh, kind of interesting, but it also goes in a lot of different directions. And I wanted to focus at least the first half of my talk on three stories or three kind of motivational stories about why I do what I do. And I think the fundamental framing is thinking about how do we move people, at least in, the, in my design research aspect, to be an effective force for social change. So what does that mean? What does it look like? And at Tilt Factor, we've been making these games. There's a huge push towards gamification. There are lots of books on gamification. Many of you don't want to even say the G word. You know, it's this whole thing. And it's supposed to make us better or sell more things. Or there's this uh, overage happening all the time. You know, we're going to be healthier because we have our games. And um, this, these questions and claims, you know, are, are, are really interesting to me. And I like to think about them and break them down about why, why we do those kinds of development projects, why we're working on that, and then how we can actually move people from an intrinsic motivation place to make changes for themselves um, with a really well-informed and not necessarily, um, not necessarily uh, uh, coerced way of doing so. But that'll be an interesting question, I think as we go through the talk um, today. So I want to just do really quickly three different little stories. Um, one is about a boy, one is about a technology, and one is about a person or a, 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 a people being, uh, who are learning things in a, in a new way. So I want to first talk about a boy. And this is a really quick anecdotal story. There is no evidence gathered. And many of us who work in games have these kinds of stories. Um, you know, sometimes we create things as practitioners that have unintended consequences. In fact, I would argue with my values of play work that everything we make probably has uh, unanticipated consequences for good or for bad. And understanding those and trying to make intentional those unintentional processes is something we like to really pay attention to. And um, uh, one of these unintended consequences was during a play session. So I do play tests every week with a kind of laboratory work where, you know, something like this, um, the story I'm going to tell is not necessarily these people, but um, we ran across uh, a young boy, and I'm calling, I'm calling him Aaron, and he was uh, on the autistic spectrum. He goes into the corner during these big play test sessions, and he would sit and not talk to anyone until a game was present. And I'm talking board games and card games. We're really doing a lot of play testing. And he could engage with other people through a game. And it's the only way he could engage with other people. And we found he would come week after week. And, and we thought, oh, here's Aaron again. Here's Aaron again. And he started to change. Um, and this made me think, gosh, you know, I'm collecting all this data about these other kinds of change. And I'm seeing, just anecdotally, right in front of me, um, a player change. So Aaron became this fixture in our program. He started talking to other kids. He started playing with other kids. And you know, while I don't study autism and I didn't gather any data on this, I actually know that, that games 
you know, are, are transformative for me and my own personal story. Uh, games were often something we did as family members. I come from this line of people who played card games because in the Midwest, people don't like talk to each other very easily. But games facilitate that. So it's really, really helpful to think about games as a framework for social interaction. We know this online, but we don't actually kind of take a look historically in how they've really functioned in our everyday practice. Um, but they really work in these situations. And uh, the story of one player changing and, and going out and, and doing all of these kinds of games with us just points again, and these kind of reminders you know, are keep me going in this work about the transformative power of play so, uh, and the importance of games to the world. You know, and I, I, I always like to just take a little step back when I say that, the importance of games in the world. Like, what does that mean, what I just said? Um, I mean, I, games are older than, than written language. We don't know how old games are, but we do have evidence of, of these cupping marks becoming an uh, early uh, proposed Moncala board from 5,870 BC. So that, that's a long time, okay? <laughs> Can we even think in this way? You know, um, and game game representation. I was just in Italy, and I, I look up at this cathedral from 1100 AD, and in Genoa, and there's a chessboard. There's this whole series of chessboards imprinted in medieval cathedrals, referring to the Knights Templar. Interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyway, another kind of set of research. So, so, and, and also some of the some of the squares are blocked in, which suggests the moves. Anyway, I, I think I don't know. I don't want to get too kind of like Dan Brown, but there's a there's a there's an interesting thing happening here. So, and and these games tell us something about being human, and this is what continues to make me really engaged as a creative practitioner, as a scholar. So that's just an idea of this one of the little motivating moments or motivating factors that I, I experience as someone who, running a game design lab and making these games. But let me tell you a little bit about uh, experience we had with a technology. So more or less, there are probably some technologists and scientists in the room. And you know, we always, uh, we, we always hope that technology can make things better, right? Like a new technology can help improve something. At least uh, this is not always the case. <laughs> Some people are critical of these things, but, but again, new technologies can have unintended consequences, and, and it's interesting how little we actually study the effects of certain kinds of technologies. And, I, and I, I have to say some of this research has really shocked me. So probably some of you have heard of this game. It's a board game developed in 2010 called Pox Save the People. It was a public health game that we developed to, you know, a local nonprofit in New Hampshire said we could make another brochure telling people to get vaccinated, but what does that really mean? Could we actually use a game or something like this? And there was no budget. We just did it on a whim. And we produced this game and started studying the effects of what was happening with this game. How it's played, you just have these um, infected people in a community, a fictional community, and the disease spreads depending on the cards, and you're trying to contain the disease and, and change, um, change people's... Uh, uh, eventually show through the game rules that vaccination is a pretty smart thing to do compared to attempting to use the public health system to cure people, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a game that doesn't preach. It's seen as a strategy game. It's a lot like Go to some people. It's like Go with a spread mechanic and a co-op co co Go. Anyway, um, and what, what's interesting about it is the kind of things that, that really came out of people as they played. Um, we did lots of little studies on this, and actually there's a, there's a, a paper coming out um, at, at sometime in December um, on some of this research that I'm talking about now. Um, but I think what's more interesting is thinking about the way in which the digital technology 
change the play experience. And um, that's really interesting. So we made a digital version of Pox, and then we made a zombie version. The, the story about making the zombie version is kind of complicated, but I took, the, I took some of our games to Toy Fair. I go to Gen Con and all these like gamer places, and I, we have a booth, and I kind of, we have this alternate life as this like game publisher, which is very strange for an academic. I, it's also very strange when people say, I'm an academic. That's also weird at the at the game conferences, <laughs> but um, but but so it, it's really quite interesting to 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 see. So we made these three versions of the game, and in our tests we actually used a really stripped down version of the zombie version of the game, and we had we have a pox, we have the digital version of pox, and then we have zombie pox. They're all played the same. We have the spread mechanic. It's a co-op game, one to four players. In our research, we studied two people at a time playing in pairs, randomly signed, to play this game. Now, um, let me show you the results of this randomized set of experiments here. When we asked people about the subjective va value of vaccination, you know, how do you talk about this? So um, this was, this was a, a, you know, a, a really clear marker that the zombie version somehow, even though these are exactly the same game, played, played in exactly the same conditions, there are different effects that happen throughout every question we ask, throughout every set of things that we ask. And invariably, the digital version was less effective at doing the things we thought it was doing. Now, why is that? So we've done a lot of interesting work about trying to dig it. We recorded all the audio. We've gone through and looked for markers. Players played 10 to 20% faster on the iPad. They agreed with each other more. And let's say out of six games, in the analog version, five out of six games, the players won. And in the digital version, five out of six games, the players lost. So they're playing faster, they're talking less to each other, and they're actually making bad decisions. <laughs> right? So this is important if we just think that transferring something from one medium to another is really you know, transmedia. Is, is, we know that they, they, they do these different conceptual things, but what do they actually do in terms of our attitudes, our behaviors, and, and how much we really invest in this um, game. This is also true for systems thinking performance. We actually used uh, Sturman's systems thinking measures, um, MIT professor, and, he, and we found how, how people valued vaccination was a similar kind of result to systems thinking. The control was a little bit better here, um, but we still have a pretty significant shift between the zombie version and the digital version. And this, this zombie business is really interesting to me. You know, I, 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 we, it was kind of a joke to make the zombie version. It wasn't like a, a grand theory of like, you know, we're going to educate people far better with the undead. But, but it actually worked, and it, it's an interesting thing to try to unpack the implications of this, you know, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but I do start to think about, well, what happens if we're going to rewrite textbooks and they're completely fiction? What if all of our textbooks were fiction? What if all our, 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 you know, we're learning, you know, and some of you in the room are like, yeah, bring it up. But, um, but this is really important. But the point of my story here is that we need to know far more about how each technology works. 
And you know, it's not saying that this is a bad thing. Now that we know some of the effects that people will play this faster, we can put in some design um, constraints so that uh, there's some kind of discussion that happens, or we can try to make an interesting animation to slow the play down and do some tests. But it's the idea that, that these, these are kind of unconsciously just being produced without question as direct translations or as these, as these media artifacts. And we, don't, uh, we haven't found studies about analog to digital transfers like this. And that is a huge gap. And there, if that's one gap, Think about how many other gaps we might have as research uh, needs in this area. So sometimes we have these unintended consequences, um, and sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not so good. And uh, the, the, the last story is about uh, a person, or I would say many people, uh, who learn to see things in a new way. And we're going to have a little buffalo game because I thought it would be fun to play buffalo with this group. It's going to be digital, though, because you can't read those. Okay. So we're going to play this game. Name a person, fictional or real, living or dead, who matches the following criteria. Somebody has to shout it out fast. This is going to be a competitive crowd. I can feel it. Einstein. Einstein. I think, I think you know, there's a distance, of, you know. <laughs> I should get little clickers. Actually, I don't know how to use those. Anyway, yes. John Does anyone verify this? I don't even know who that is. This is Andrew guy. John Colco, no one. You should know him. Google him. <laughs> okay. So, so in, this is a social game, right? So we could agree to give this person to this you know, participant. Yeah. Or we could fight with him and, and, and suggest something else. Okay. Okay, I think you were, okay, so we, we're moving on, but there's maybe a tie. Okay. Ultimate Spider-Man. Ultimate Spider-Man? Do we agree? Scott agrees. Why? Tell us. Oh, that's right. I don't, I don't really know Ultimate Spider-Man. You've, you've hit a niche in my lack of superhero knowledge right here. Well, so Ultimate Spider-Man has been played by uh, Peter Parker, the white guy, but he's also now um, Miles Morales, I think is the new name, so Hispanic. So, so, so while not in one body multiracial, <laughs> through time. <laughs> okay. one issue. Right. So this is an interesting example, right? So we just, so, so, if we give this to him, which I would propose, yeah. Um, uh, we've just changed the definition of multiracial. So if I were doing a values at play moment, I would actually say, oh, yes, well, let's reflect on what we actually mean by multiracial. And it gets really murky really quickly, actually, once we start to unpack what do we actually mean by multiracial. I've had this, I've, I've given you know, multiracial something. We had, you would not believe some of the things people say sometimes that are wrong about multi, you know, like things like, uh, Hispanic. <laughs> you know, you're like, well, I, you know, talk, talk about that. What does that mean? You know, or Japanese. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, at one point. <laughs> so, so anyway, you get into strange, co you know, uh, conversations, but actually I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Okay, um, so that's Buffalo. Here's one more. Captain Janeway. Oh. All right. So, I, yes, bing, bing, bing. So that's the first time, by the way, you've made my day, because that's the first time that someone has not said Marie Curie. Yes. 
for this. For this. So the, the genesis of this game was actually to create a game. A ga we've been creating series of games to promote women in science, math, technology, and engineering, right? So we came up with all these different kinds of games. We, like you wear a mask of Jane Goodall, and you're going, I mean, all kinds of really weird like games that kids would never play, um, which is what we would. Um, so, so we're trying to, but this ultimately, it was there weren't a lot of glamorous, interesting kind of like science figures that people could identify. They were just wearing masks. And lots of, so we did like 20 or 30 prototypes on this game, um, or on, on games for STEM and women in STEM specifically. Um, and this game originally started out by being a brainstorm game where you're like, uh, you know, woman, chemist, name one. Woman, engineer, name one. And no one could, this was not a game. This is not a game anyone we knew could play, and we're those things, <laughs> you know, the people I was testing with. So, so this is a problem if we, can't, if we couldn't name, we can't ask players to do something. So a typical games for impact person, and if they were not really paying attention to the design, would, would I mean, at, when we worked for the National Science Foundation for this, uh, you know, that's the kind of game they really wanted. They really wanted this literal, like name women scientists, let's get to know them. Well, if we can't even get to that stage yet, we're, we're, we're not even at a place where we can raise awareness in that way. We, we, we don't even have a consciousness about, about women in science like at a very deep level. So, so, so this is a seri one of the series of games designed to address biases and stereotypes about women in science. Um, but eventually, we, we had to pull out from the women in science part. This one actually, awkward moment, which I wasn't going to talk about, but I have some information if it comes up in the Q&A. Um, that that we, we really wanted to unpack what's the what's what's the prior issue? The prior issue is really that that people have a lot of biases and stereotypes, right? Like that they're just so prevalent, people can't get over them very easily. So um, uh, we created this game. Uh, it, it's uh, it's 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 been studied in a lot of different different manners. And how it's working is it's actually taking some some some. The, we we actually drew from psychology to look at bias and discrimination measures. Like how do you measure people's discrimination levels? How do you do that? Well, psychologists have figured this out for many, many years, like how we would use standardized studies of how, how people are discriminating against each other and how they might see the world in closed or more open ways. And it turns out when we're more discriminating, um, or we're more, uh, well, I guess you could say that, but it's, it, it sounds kind of like uh, aesthetic, but it's, it, that's not what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, you tend to, the, the, a person might tend to collapse categories, you know, like you might start to say, you know, if I come to you and I say, oh, TL, I'm an artist, she might have a picture in her head, what would that picture be? You know, I might have a beret, I might be a painter, I might wear black, I might get up at, you know, noon, I might uh, have salons. You know, I'm. You know, these are maybe 19th century versions of the painting, but whatever. You know, I. But but you. But we still carry these. I mean, you watch a you know a comedy. We still have these kind of tropes. So I'm, I'm just pulling out artists. Um, name another kind of social category, and you can find some interesting stereotypes. Um, you wouldn't think tennis player probably in your first kind of artist. Tennis player, no. Um, you might not say sci-fi fan immediately unless they were a particular kind of fan artist or on deviant art. So um, that, so this kind of thing, uh, this kind of collapsing of categories into uh, a kind of a dominant way of thinking can be expanded. And the expanded of expanded way that these social categories can be constructed 
is how we can measure what's called the social identity complexity. That someone's social identity complexity, how they perceive social identities. Um, so, so this is a long way of telling you that this is uh, the more complex your social identity complexity, the less biased or discriminatory you are likely to be in your daily life. So, so you might not say, for example, <coughs> someone from this country is, oh, a terrorist, right? Like that's collapsing the social identity and the sense of expanding the social identity. So what we did is measure this. We measured social identity uh, uh, complexity scores, and then there's also another score that measures biases and stereotypes, universal orientation scale. And um, in this case, so they were, the players were uh, asked to list their four most impo important in-groups and to rate them. And so we have, if you're interested in the actual measures, I have a slide um, at the end of the talk just so that people can, maybe people really like to know. And in fact, people have asked me for handouts of this because people love measures. When, when I start talking about measures, it's a new thing for at least humanists to think about. And, and that's always interesting. And then also, so you see that the game is changing, and this is statistically significant, changing the way in which we can increase social identity complexity. So in a way, um, we could say that this game is lowering discrimination. And that is an interesting thing. Now how is it doing it? Is it doing it consciously or subconsciously? Um, so we got this picture sent to us from folks at Zynga who picked up the game at uh, Indicade, and they're, they're the Farmville team. <laughs> And I thought this was also really great. Like, people in Farmville are playing our game. What does this mean? Like, maybe Farmville's going to start getting really interesting social categories happening in Farmville. You know, really cool. Um, uh, but but there's a, there's a, there are some tweets that have come out about this game by people perhaps close by. Um, so, played a demo of Till Factor's Buffalo. Most awesome game I've ever played about what a terrible person I am. And that bo the, 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 the response tweet, Tilt Factor, it's true, I couldn't remember Sonia Sotomayor for Hispanic lawyer. That's just shameful on my part. Okay, so this little conversation is a conscious kind of realization. Like, oh, you know, there are things I don't know. Oh, I'm, 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 I need to know this, or I've, I want to be better. I want to learn more. That's this really conscious thing. But unconsciously, this game is actually doing more work. This game is actually working far more that we've, we've, think, uh, we've seen on an unconscious level than a conscious level. And then this starts to perhaps bring in the question of, um, well, who, who's, who's, who's getting to choose if they're more biased or less biased, right? Like, um, I would say that we, would, we have been accused of mind control by certain, <laughs> certain groups, <laughs> which is an interesting uh, uh, kind of dagger to, to, to Levy, based on this kind of realization. So, so there's an unconscious part of this, and there's a conscious part of this. And I, I, I'd like to answer questions on that when I get to a, a, another point. Um, I do want to show a, a little bit about the way in which this stuff, oh, this is video. Uh, uh, uh. I do want to show a little video about why this is really culturally relevant. You know, uh, um, time and time again, so can we try to f yeah. make the yeah, audio? I, I can't just, is this work? This is light. Oh, good. I turned up speech. Uh oh. I think we're going to. Yeah, there's some. Ready? Yeah. Blast. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Steal it because Marsha's like, oh no, what happened? And he's like, hey, look, 20 bucks. 
And so, do you think that Renee is doing something good, bad, or um, just neutral? I think she. I don't. I think she's going to take the money. Do you think that Renee and Marcy are likely to be friends or not? Not really. And what do you think about Marcy's parents? Do you think they'd be comfortable with her being friends with Renee or not? Um. Well, if they find out the situation that happened, they might be a little concerned about if Renee's a thief. Mm-hmm. And this one we have Erica and Allison, and they're also in the hallway at school. Can you tell me what it seems is happening in this picture? Allison looks like a sweet girl. Mm-hmm. So I think that she would pick up Erica's money and give it back to her. Okay. So then, do you think Allison's doing something good, bad, or neutral? Um, pretty good. And what about Allison and Erica? Do you think they're probably friends or not so much? Yeah, they're probably friends. Okay. Do you think Erica's parents would like it if she was friends with Allison? Yeah. Her responses, according to our expert, Dr. Melanie Killen, could indicate a subconscious racial bias. A bias that kids develop the messages they hear at school, at home, the characters in the TV shows they watch, and what they see online. And Michaela's reversing the scenarios based on race wasn't unique. 24%, almost a quarter of all children, both white and African American, saw their own race more positively than the other race. So, so this is, this isn't, you know, just a, uh, you know, it's a CNN study. I'm not sure how rigorous it was. It was Anderson Cooper. He did a series. He actually has a series of six studies like this. But there's some amazing, um, there's some amazing uh, online kinds of things. But uh, I don't show this as evidence. I show this as kind of a uh, uh, anecdote that that really does just that is um, mirroring the actual evidence that we do have, which is that the data shows that we have a lot of biases and stereotypes. They're not necessarily going away. In fact, they're being reinforced a lot of the time. They're changing through time. Um, I would say that there's some, like women in math, uh, the numbers are changing, and I think that the stereotypes may be changing slowly with that. But we have a lot of complex social interactions happening, and biases are fluid, but they do, um, they do happen. And it, this kind of stuff is really not going to fit into what I have assembled here as like the, you know, the workforce of 2020. Um, you know, this, is, this is really who we are as a, as a nation, at least in the United States, now and in a few short years. So how do, you, how do you really understand people working together, living together, and thriving, and finding value in each other's difference rather than, rather than kind of pretending like it doesn't happen or it doesn't exist? So this is really important to try to come to, a, 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 get a handle on this stuff and try to, try to really grapple with that. And so we're developing a suite of these games digitally as well. They, they you know, knowing that the digital version may have different effects and we have to study that. It's something that we really want to try to get into schools and also get into workplaces because um, we're developing a a version of uh, Awkward Moment which is about uh, embarrassing social situations for middle schoolers often based on true stories of people's lives. Um, we're making one called Awkward Moment at Work right now, and uh, you know about trying to socially come to terms with some of these kinds of confronting uh, awkward things um, that happen at work. So to sum things up in this little story that I've told you, uh, and, and I have a few more things I want to talk about what I'm working on currently. Um, this is in the last two years, really, this work um, uh, culminating in some really interesting, even, even more recent studies having to do with the efficacy of, of, of certain kinds of games when you kind of, if you sneak the content in, in a way, or, uh, you know, what's the balance of content and fun and all of this. So we've done some systematic studies on that to figure that out. And we, we've come to some interesting, uh, we have some interesting data on that. 
So a boy, a technology, a person, people who learn to see things in new ways. These are just some ways that I like to think about that. But I, it's, I still leave with I, some questions here, like how do designers know if you have the right approach, right? Like how do I know that this works and this doesn't work? How, how do you choose the right measures? I mean, these are kinds of things that you do through trial and error. But and how can design endeavors and creative uh, games make a difference empirically and conceptually? So, so I, you know, my background, I have a pretty big critical theory and historical backgrounds to uh, media studies and to game studies and I, I, I bring that with me to think about well what does it really mean to make this stuff and how how can how can you how can you really frame it in an important way and so getting back to this idea of human values is one way to really do that that that, that we do you know data alone doesn't give us the tools to process the implications of what's going on but the the human values part really does um, and in the upcoming book that I did with Helen Niesenbaum, um, we, we actually identify different game elements that are trigger points for values expression. So how can we say, you know, values can come out in the strategies that uh, a player is using in a game. Values can come out in the aesthetics. Oftentimes when people think, oh, values, games, you're talking about representation, you're talking about violence. Um, those two things are, one, are, are, are part of a larger constellation of ways in which we can unpack how games are created and how they're um, assembled. And giving a values-focused analysis is, is one way to keep centered in all of this kind of... Um, and all this kind of work. So there's some design techniques I just wanted to share. I, I know that there's some practitioners in the audience. So uh, in critical play, I talk about this iterative process where you have to keep values in mind. Same thing with values of play. We, we, we like to identify the values that we are supporting in the process all the way around in the iterative process. Um, this embedded technique, so for example, in awkward moment, You'll have an awkward moment that people respond to in the game that's like, oh, I got gum stuck in my hair. And then the next awkward moment is someone wrote um, terrorist on a girl's notebook in class. Um, you know, so, so sometimes there are politically charged or biased incidents, but there's a lot of fun incidents. And, and a lot of times we've gotten a lot of resistance because sometimes people really feel like if you're teaching people about bias, you're changing bias, it has to be serious. You have to talk about each bias, you have to educate people on the biases. And we're finding a different thing is, is, is equally if not more effective. That we can, actually people can be having fun and having a conversation. And when people play these games, they never say that was an educational game or that was a bias game. In fact, they're sold at uncommon goods and online stores and like people don't, the people who buy them aren't necessarily reading these papers and it's not advertised as a social change game. These are just games in the world that are doing social change. And that's a very different shift um, in how I'm, I've been working. Um, I want to uh, talk about framing. Framing things is really important. Um, we we uh, learned a pretty amazing thing. I'll show you a slide about framing games in particular ways. Um, more diverse teams equals more diverse games. I mean, this is kind of uh, uh, a no-brainer uh, no for me in the, in the way that I try, I really try um, valiantly to make sure that not just gamers are in my lab, that we need to have a variety of, of points of view, that we need to have conflict, that we need to have a um, variety of cognitive points of view and cognitive processes, as well as ethnic diversity, gender diversity. But it, it's, it's about all kinds of diversity coming together and making um, some more interesting uh, clashes. And in the clashes come some of these interesting answers. Uh, we ha it, it, it's <laughs> I actually bought lamestudies.com. I, I, <laughs> I was really inspired. 
I think Dira or something <laughs> a couple of years ago, not the most recent. Anyway, um, uh, real play tests all the time. You know, it, it's kind of easy to not talk to players and get lost in how you love to make something. And that's fine if you're an artist and you want to just go in your world and make something and then people like it or they don't. But if you're really trying to serve, I mean, these are kind of products that serve people. That's a very different way of understanding the world. Um, and I, talking to real players and actually listening to them instead of saying, well, I think they meant this, is, is, a, is a key thing. Um, and this is, this is the last point I have here. Don't only build that, what you want to play. Um, you know, I never thought I would make a party game. <laughs> I will just say that, ever. Um, this is a little nugget I have of uh, some data that my student, uh, uh, Cody Throat, did. Um, she did a study with 120, uh, I think it was 120 students uh, at uh, a college, <laughs> um, where she studied the effects of the game Blockus. Now, Blockus, I don't know if you've seen this game before. It's kind of like a, 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 it's a commercial game. It's, um, it's, a, it's like a Tetris-type tile game, right? So she had pairs, randomized pairs, play this game. The only difference in any of the, uh, among any of the conditions was that she introduced the game as either a game, a strategic game, or a spatial game. And then you're seeing here the performance between men and women on uh, mental rotation tasks that are measures of spatial reasoning. Um, and strate she had another strategic measure that she, um, that she created, right? So, that she uh, acquired. So men, men and women are performing about the same playing blockus on post tasks. And if you introduce the game as strategic, men's scores go up and women's scores go down. And the effect is really worsened or heightened um, when introduced as a spatial game. Now, this is this this kind of data, you know, and, and this game is is billed as a spatial reasoning game, Mensa award-winning. There was never any data on this, actually. You know, people don't actually research those things that they put on boxes. So, <laughs> so when you actually research, you're like, wow, how is that possible? Like, how 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 could this have happened? So 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 look at just the shift of one word. Think of how many times if you're an educator, or you're running a workshop for kids, or you're running a, a college classroom, what one word could do to your audience, could do to your student performance. How, how would we know this unless we didn't do this kind of research? So this is just a, one little study, but it's a study of, I think, great importance about framing experiences, play experiences, um, and tests, and content, subject matter, other kinds of things, too. Yeah. Um, so, um, and this is people playing Awkward Moment at IndieCade, and it, it, it won an award, that's Awkward Moment. So, um, I'm just going to speak right now in my last few minutes here about um, this, you know, the role of criti critical inquiry in my work. I mean, I, as an artist, I like to think of uh, Marcel Duchamp's um, notion of laboratory experiments. He didn't actually have a laboratory. I actually have a laboratory, but I actually think of my studio as a laboratory. And in my art studio, some of the stuff I've been working with um, uh, are, are um, some public engagement projects and some installation work and a computational poetry uh, project. So for me, critical inquiry is at the core of this practice. And uh, so what what kind of evolution of this project called Play Your Place, um, which is a public artwork that is um, 
a participatory game environment. So what happens is well, we go and uh, we uh, get some funding, get local peoples to start running workshops that where people, where local people in a particular community draw what their future of their town should be. So it's a way, I started working with some urban planners in a city outside of London called South End in 2010. I had an artist residency there and I, I, the, a whole bunch of urban planners came to my talk. I was doing this virtual architecture project about uh, a Korean city. And uh, these uh, urban planners showed up and they said, we want a new way to talk to people. We want a new way to consult, to get to know what people need in the world. And we, my collaborator and I, Ruth Catlow, said, well, why don't, why don't they draw? You know, this was like, whoa, you know, and I said, why don't they make a game, you know, and, that, and that's what this, this project is, actually. What, what this video right here is, we, I don't know if anyone remembers that old soda play, soda, um, a little online toy, soda program this for us. Um, oops, come back, go back. You will play. Okay, so this is made by, a, I don't know, some stranger. It's a platform game system. This is about the Thames estuary. Here's a political figure saying we have the facts. Um, I don't know who that is. Um, environment agency, okay. We must move forward. We need more. So this is, this is I think, supposed to represent a local fisherman or something of this community. And it's a very strange game. <laughs> seaside slums, seaside slums, and industrialized estuary. So, so, so. Anyway, the, these are the kind of games that are coming out of this project. They're all created by people in the in this in the town. Um, in drawing workshops, I'll show you some of the, what the drawing workshops look like. People, people get together and, and start, they make a platform sometimes and they get their paper together and they draw the whole thing out, upload their stuff into this online game system, an online game platform, and kind of have their voice known through a, through a urban planning game. So it's not a typical urban planning project, um, but it is something that urban planners are aware. In fact, this guy is an urban planner um, in a neighboring town who was really saying, I really want to try this myself. I've seen so many of these games. Um, we did public, we, when we're still doing these public engagement workshops, uh, you know, who can make a game is still, you know, the indie game scene still has a kind of cult status, like anyone can make a game, so why don't we, if, and anyone can draw, even stick figures. So once you get over this, like, uh, idea, uh, you have all kinds of people saying what they really think their future town should be, and they put up topics, they can vote on each other's games and stuff like that. So, so this is, it started in this town called South End, which is kind of a Coney Island esque town, has an arcade, uh, like it's pretty, yeah, but many of the pinball machines are broken. And um, it's a way that, that players can actually engage in the world that they want to see. But um, one of the things that we've had a lot of skepticism to the project a little bit because people would come to the workshops and like, is this the real thing or not? <laughs> I think, I think there's a lot of hype about games and about what you can do with games. And people really wanted to say, can I make something? Will I really get something out of this? Can I invest my afternoon and get something 
and they leave saying it's the real thing, and I, I'm really happy about that. But it's 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 true that, that it, it is hard actually to come up with these games, and sometimes the games aren't that fun. But but people leave talking about the technology. They leave feeling masterful, if that's uh, a strange way to say it. Um, and they also do things. This one's about. Um, Local, like visiting your local shops versus uh, going to big supermarkets. This one, these are some sketches from people uh, in this uh, in this area. Uh, this is a big crazy one uh, about the cuts in the UK to retirement funds. This is a, a retiree who you, you actually don't do anything except just go along the, it's very Jason Rohrer-y. Um, you just go along the base and you just get bombarded with all the stuff that the government has changed in the last two years. And, you know, and these are made by people who don't know anything about like critical game studies and activists. It's, just, it's a totally different group of people. These are just working people who feel mad about losing their benefits. Um, so this, this is pretty interesting stuff that has emerged. Um, switching gears, that's a big public art project that looks, you know, it's, it's hard to look like something. This is a other studio practice. I've, I've been collaborating with dead poets. Um, and I, actually, I've been collaborating with the dead. This is like a theme right now. I don't know. What, I don't know. And this project has some, some, uh, some relationship to Nick Mumford's work, actually, a little bit. So I've been working on ways to collaborate with the dead. And um, starting with my father, that's another project um, that I'll talk about in just a second. This one, um, where I'm actually producing books um, with dead poets based on a merger of our language. Um, inversions, opposites. It's a three-book series: the book of inversions, the book of reversals, the book of opposites, where the language is defined and changed and and planted from my poems to, for example, uh, in the Saint Vincent Millay and back. For, so, if you're interested in that kind of thing, we can talk after. <laughs> um, these, this is a series I was just starting to work on, um, and I'm still, uh, still, it's in the formative stages where I'm collaborating with my father, who passed away four years ago. Um, he was a, a, a working class guy from the South Bronx who had an eighth grade education, but he um, was kind of a mad scientist. And when he passed away, my mom found this box of uh, papers from 1959 to 1962, which were all these patent applications and invention diagrams. Um, and I started, I, I, I was looking at these things. I, I, just, I just actually went through them in, in the last month when I had an artist residency in the last five weeks. So I just got back from that trip and uh, started unpacking some of this stuff. I mean, sound power to power all devices. And then I found out that there's some MIT researchers working on that in 2011, which is funny because that's funny. Anyway, um, so I haven't talked about this project at all. So what I, but, but um, I'm imagine, uh, these are, these are mock-ups of installations. So I started with inventing his inventions, but then I, I just wanted to make them maybe more aesthetic or more communicative in, in my kind of gallery language. And so these are, um, these are, um, uh, levitating sound-powered telephones hung with electromagnets um, as one, so they, they produce sound. Um, also using uh, piezoelectric properties of crystals to generate sound. This is a, this is a, would be a large microphone. Oops. Uh, oh yeah, there's, there's more, but you, you don't get to see them. Um, and then in Till Factor, we're doing a lot of stuff with um, public health. We, we've been working with the Harvard Medical School, training doctors to play um, games critical of the health system. <laughs> um, it's 
very interesting. They actually get to rework the public health system in the United States with this game. It's called Rethink Health. Uh, we like this game, but we also thought it would be more fun learning from the zombie game to add some fiction. People aren't into it, except we are. So we actually just created um, Leech Wives and Bone Setters, which is the exact same game, reskinned to be a, a plague game where you have to drink strange vials and and it's a, it, it reworked the uh, um, medieval medieval to Renaissance healthcare system, which is based on the American healthcare system, <laughs> and then. <laughs> And then uh, we're doing a, a, a hand-washing game. This is, this is actually a really hard problem to try to get people to wash their hands. I'm like, oh, God, really? But yes. So we have these paper things that everyone touches, and then we try to get them. Anyway, it's, we're, we're trying to get people to wash their hands. This is interesting from, from you know, it's great to change someone's, uh, like, it's great to, to work on a bias or a stereotype. It's another thing to change a behavior, and this is where things get really difficult. But um, you know, people like the Minister of Health of Rwanda asked us to do this game, and as I said, how do you say no to her? She's really great. And, um, and then we're also doing some stuff, taking some of the psychological principles from here and expanding them into uh, online activities and this kind of, uh, like, uh, for workplace environments. We also have a project called Metadata Games. I, I think um, it's, it's actually a, a project that's an open source, crowdsourcing humanities project to work, uh, I think we're starting to work with the Digital Public Library of America, we're working with Boston Public Library, where it's, it's like Google Image, uh, image Games, Image Search, um, but we uh, give the data back to the library. So the data is actually kept by, not Google, but by the library, and they can do what they would like with it. So it's a way that people can know more about their collections, and we can link knowledge between institutions. And, and there's some mobile games and some other games in that. So I just wanted to mention that project because I actually have several collaborators in the Boston area. I'm coming back and forth for that all the time. There's some one-up games. It's really it's fun to design these games because it's really hard to design a game for which there is no answer, yet you need a correct answer. This is a great, it's like a, it's, it's a lot of fun and, and kind of challenging to continue to make new games like this. I'm also doing a, a game called Monarch, which is a... Uh, like a pro-girl German board game, uh, awesome thing. I'm not going to talk about. And then, <laughs> um, I just wanted to end with this notion of uh, of, of Andre Breton, who 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 really inspires me by thinking about, you know, his 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 game here. You know, I. We can easily make you know, additions or, or, or changes to existing games, which I think we need to do. But I'm really interested in inventing new kinds of ways that play can be changing or that, that can really foster change. And it, it's not, for me, it's not like looking at you know, trying to change representation or trying to change one or two game elements. It's about fundamentally uh, investing in the way in which a game frames that experience with each other. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a digital game. It can be anything. But, you know, I, I, for me, critical play, this idea of critical play is really needed across all cultural spectrums. We need it in technology and engineering. We need it in, in, in healthcare systems. We need it in teaching. We, we need a sense of critical play outside of the discipline of game studies or outside the design studio. And my hope is that this work can move on into those domains. So um, I want to just point out some uh, upcoming articles that are coming out because of some of the data that you see here is going to be in them. And then also just thank you. Um, thank everyone. And uh, please pepper me with challenging questions now. Thank you.
many, many hooks to get into. So, could you elaborate on, as you asked us to ask him to do, the conscious versus unconscious effect of the game you're talking about? It seemed like somewhat casual use of conscious and unconscious. Yeah, yeah. You know, it didn't sound like a falsifiable statement, if you will. Well, I I will tell you this. I will tell you that what we're, the next set of studies we've proposed, um, and we need some funding to do that, the next set of studies are to uh, go into the neurology, right? So we're actually trying to study brain activity and how brains are physically changed through this work. So there's a spectrum of this, right? One is, do we, can we measure things in kind of social conversation? Another place to measure this is uh, unconscious responses. Um, the, the measures that we're using are of unconscious responses from a psychological standpoint, you know, there are different ways to talk about what that means. Um, and then what we're trying to do is say, okay, well, we, we know these fuzzy things somewhat about these unconscious processes. Can we prove that the brain is changing because of them? So that's the next set of studies, and then also longitudinal studies. Because we really would love to see, playing this game for five years, what happens to you. Um, these are, that's the holy grail of all research, I guess, but um, it would be really interesting to do that. Thank you. Studies, just to follow up, there's, there's studies uh, uh, on the unconscious biases correlate them with anything that anything else. In other words, the fact that you have this artifact which people have to take a test that they show what appear to be mm-hmm. uh, unconscious bias or unconscious mm-hmm. Do we know that that really correlates with how they behave in the world or? Uh, what, not so far. What we're trying in the in the longitudinal plans that we have, we want to set the stage for measuring behavior change of some kind. Um, we do have some interesting um, data nuggets, though, that I didn't talk about. So we've 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 met, we studied this game with um, with adults, and because adults play it anyway. I mean, it's in middle school, but they play it, and they they even talk about it. Um, and we found some interesting stuff happening with this game. Uh, we did a we did a study where they, uh, there's a, there's a psychological measure of thinking about perspective taking where you draw an E on your forehead. I don't know if you know this this particular. It's a, it's it's a common study. So you will play the game, and so our control condition was actually apples to apples because mechanically this is very close to apples to apples. So we use that as a control. So it's not not game and game also, right? Um, and uh, there, so players are are we ask them to do some distractor activities, doodle with your left hand and doodle with your right hand, all this stuff. And then they're then they're sitting by themselves after the, playing the game, so they're not looking directly at another player, and they're asked to draw an E on their forehead. And apparently this is a validated measure for whether you're taking the experience or the perspective of someone else, or you're kind of seeing things from your own perspective. And in our study, about 60% of the adults playing apples to apples did the E facing so that like someone else could read it, um, other-oriented E. And we had 100% who, after playing this game, did the other-oriented perspective. So we have some, you know, that's a, it's a kind of behavior. It's not a big behavior. It's not like I've monitored people's workplace, you know. But this is the place I think we need to go with appropriate privacy measures and other kinds of things. Because, I mean, if we can measure people's biases and stereotypes, um, when, and, you know, we can measure all kinds of things, like in the workforce, for example, does it mean that you get fired if you're racist? <laughs> Does it mean you know? Are, are, and who's making these calls? Are they you know? Are ed- who's educated to to be able to look at that data? Um, it's it's a loaded and interesting area. 
Yeah. Um, follow up on me a little bit. Can you talk about kind of the difficulty of, um, especially since you kind of work in this game searching serious games. Well, I hesitate to use the phrase serious games. Me and Jack break it. It works mostly. Um, kind of the difficulty of getting metrics on that cultural stuff. Uh, is is that a problem you've run into? Because Can you say what cultural stuff? Do you mean what um, Scott's talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, games like Buffalo, an awkward moment, um, where, where you're not necessarily, or, well, I guess maybe even Pox, too, right? Where when you're trying to change attitudes, behaviors, cultural mores, right? Um, you know, it, it seems like that measuring that change is, is the bugaboo, especially when it comes to, like, publicly funded research. Yeah, I, there there are many reasons why. I mean, one, it's very, and this is not just true for us. This is true for any research. This is true for education, too. I mean, it's just a huge morass of very few studies that you've ever read are longitudinal studies. I mean, almost, almost none. I mean, most studies that you will read, if they're even well done studies even, like nice, good data was clean and actual random assignment was used and very thorough people, still you're talking about like a 20 minute experiment after something. We, we, there are many things we don't know. So this is a problem with the whole field of gathering data about people. Now, you know, I, I think in computer science we have some interesting, uh, you know, progress in this idea of gathering data, but we also have equally biased ways of looking at that data because it's through a technology at a particular time and place which doesn't take into account the whole human experience either. So we're always looking through lenses, and um, I just think it's interesting to look through the lenses that I've found here because they're actually shifting and moving metrics I can see. Um, and I think that's interesting and more, more likely to have promise than other ways. It's not the be all and end all. It's, it's on a, you know, a continuum. Yes, hello. Um, I'm doing some work looking at uh, critical digital media literacies and I'm trying to argue that um, people looking at digital media literacies have been focusing a lot on uh, kind of exposure outcomes, right? So you're looking at you know, the person learn a particular skill, they didn't build social capital, and that type of stuff. And I'm really interested in a different kind of approach, which looks at what happens when you actually link um, digital media literacy work to uh, conscious uh, political education or critical consciousness raising uh, when people are doing the learning digital media literacy in the context of doing, say, community organizing. Um, the question that I have for you is really about, um, I'd love to hear you think a little bit about a different lens, which is the, in the impacts or outcomes of people doing game design. So rather than, you know, let's expose people to this, yeah, what yeah. happens when you give people tools, especially if those tools become massified and spread and there's more and more of them, it's easier and easier to make digital games. Um, you know, is anyone, are you or is anyone doing a good job looking at the outcomes of engaging in critical game design? on people's, uh, people's consciousness, especially along, say, race or gender? I think that there are probably a few people doing um, some of this work. I would, I, if I were going to look in that direction, I would probably ask Jill Denner um, in California, and, I uh, and a few, I, I could brainstorm on who to, who to ask some of this stuff. Um, I, 
we've done we did a workshop um, at different games with with uh, with some folks uh, where awkward moment at work or awkward moment was kind of created, starting with these cards, but then people made their own awkward moments, um, like awkward moments in the game industry, and it was like a. Uh, session where people were generating their own content, and we've done that since, like having people submit their own content. Um, I don't really do a whole lot of game design workshops for game design's sake. Grow a game cards, however, these guys, which look different now, um, these have been studied extensively as a values-based tool to do game design. So we've looked at values and how people talk about values and think about values. Again, in a workshop setting, you're not finishing a game. So you're not seeing this longitudinal or even shorter longitudinal effect. But we have just looked at the way the discourse changes through using a tool like this, which uh, instigates a discussion of human values. Lots of people are doing sort of game design workshops and then writing about, we did this and it was cool, it caused critical reflection. But I guess I'm really asking or pushing you, what about doing you know, case control studies of like this group played the game, this group you know, created content yeah. or reworked it, and then looking at what are the differential outcomes? Doing it's totally possible. It's totally possible to do. Um, we haven't been doing that, I guess. I guess for a few reasons. One of which, one of which is that I think um, I find that game design workshops are very labor intensive, very cool, and very classist. I mean, I, I, unless they're like specifically for this disadvantaged group, or, and you still get this idea like I'm a game designer and I'm not a game designer. I, I, I think it's actually a pretty chart. I, I would have to think about this more. But my reaction is a cautious one because I, I, I guess I just think about who gets to design games and, and what kind of dynamics happen in those workshops and who's running the workshops. And it's, very, it, it, it's, it's pretty loaded, actually, uh, all those factors. And so I, I really, and I, I'm not doing that kind of work, I guess, um, partially because we don't, I live in the middle of nowhere. We don't have very many. I ran a game design workshop for kids last summer, and I think there were eight kids. I, 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 there's not enough data there. It would be just, it's a lot. It's really difficult. Um, but I, I would say I would say this to you, that um, yeah, I would just, so Boys and Girls Club actually wanted to use Grow a Game in a workshop setting for kids to do an after-school program for game design for, you know, youth. Um, and they had one facilitator for like 150 people. So I, I I was like, don't, don't even do it. Don't, don't do that. Don't do it. Just, it's not going to be good for anyone. Talking about values with one adult there. It's just so we created this game called Vexata. It's a board game that actually enacts the values. So while you play the game, you can have a discussion about the values, but it's not you creating the values. And I, and I would also say this is my reaction, having done this for a long time and teaching game design since like, um, oh wow, like maybe. 10, 13 years, 14, 12 years or something, I don't know, a long time, um, is that the people who teach game design have their own ideas about what games are also, and it, that tends to, and I, and I think they need maybe more, in general, more thinking about values in different kinds of games too. Looking at what's produced is as is, is much a product of the process as, as uh, the product of the people involved as well, right? So, um, well, for example, the, the uh, local play thing, that's, I consider that an art project. There's data to be had there. There's a grad student at uh, Royal Holloway University, a PhD student who's studying that development process. She's really doing a qualitative study, though. She's not doing a kind of controlled experiment with it at this time. Um, but it, it's ripe for that. On the other hand, I, 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 
I, I feel like there are particular kinds of constraints that even the platform brings that we would have to just frame it really carefully. So I, I, anyway, this is an interesting co comment, and I don't want to spend any more time on that, but yeah, yeah. It hasn't been my focus. I, I, I've wanted to make tools to help people facilitate their work, but not, I haven't measured that, um, that part. And yeah. Hi. Um, so I was wondering, since you found out through your work, um, how much you can change people's minds or behaviors and kind of their outlook. Um, has that changed the way you perceive mainstream or mass market games? And, and can you, do you think of them in different terms or their effects on people differently? And can you think of any examples of kind of newer release games of the way that the industry is coming in either helpful or harmful for, yes, whatever? I mean, I've always thought of these, yeah, I mean, uh, as a media scholar person, I'm always looking at that stuff. I mean, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minefield, really, of, of what, you know, in terms of human values, in terms of psychological motivation. I think that there are some, you know, and, and then also sometimes we don't know until we have the data. I wouldn't have looked at Blockus and said, you know, that's totally skewed for male performance. <laughs> I would never have done, I would never have reacted to the board game Blockus in that way. And yet it, 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 you know, framing the game in particular ways as the box does, does skew the game towards male performance. So, uh, you know, in values at play, we go through a lot of case studies of different values that emerge in different games, both uh, positive and negative, um, in commercial games. You know, like certainly you take something like Flower and you have this really great open expression uh, that that uh, talk that, that kind of influences the way that humans could be symbiotic with nature. So there's a kind of environmental message in there. Um, but I, I'd have to think more about which particular psychological approaches and psychological measures I would use in each of in each of those instances. Um, I, I, I'm definitely, I definitely think that what this material is, this data, is something that people in advertising agencies, a lot of, uh, I mean, a lot of this, this, this is, has been used just to sell product and not learn, teach, or be better people. So this is not, I don't think this is all new, like what, the, what is happening psychologically. I think that we have data on the on the good side that is that isn't just sales data normally the way this is measured is let's manipulate people and if we sell more it's working <laughs> you know that's not what this is that's not what this is doing so uh, so i think that we just need to know more about any game and, and i encourage anyone who's interested in this in the least to try to run a very detailed study on an existing commercial game because we just don't have a lot of data like that um, on existing games yeah Oh. So I um thanks for your time really yeah. I'm really interested in your like different practices as uh -huh. a game designer as an academic and as an artist. How do you sort of split up your mind thinking that way in one way, but also like you know, it seems like a lot of them overlap in terms of the content obviously, like games yeah. from all of them, but are, are do some things you kind of put in this artist category versus academic? Yes, I do. Some, some things I do put in the artist category. Um, my artist practice tends to not be team-based. Um, it can be collaborative-based, like my, I have a collaborator, but it's not, I generally don't try to take on massive projects that um, are, are huge teams where people have more, um, I like, and when I'm running my team at Telfactor, I really want people's, like, I want a flat organization. That's really, it, it's like almost a collective. 
I, I, I try that. It's not always, it doesn't really work that way, but it's, it's, it strives for that kind of um, interaction. Um, and, I, and as an artist, I don't, I don't think about managing people. I just think about what I want to make. And it's really kind of selfish and awesome. I would say, <laughs> I would say that, it, that and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's a more singular vision. I would say that player place is different, right? Because player place is a public artwork, and public artwork has to deal with the public in a different kind of way, so it's a hybrid, it's a, it's a, it's a coming together. And because of that, I think I went and did you know the more installation based work so yeah i mean I, like i had this year i had many many shows in in galleries that, like the giant joystick for those of you who are interested is in germany um, <laughs> and went to germany um, at zkm and um, you know that that world is really important to me i i like to because you can ask i i can ask conceptual questions that that don't that don't make sense in this kind of place for me, and I, I don't know if I have the language to really talk about it more than that, but I, um, but it is, it's, it's really hard to balance uh, those 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 three practices, and sometimes I have to kind of cut myself off and try to write an essay or try to write a book, and then cut myself back on, and it's and it's hard to do while running basically a, a you know a, a nonprofit organization or a company. That's kind of what it yeah. it's, it runs like, yeah. Yeah, and, and you definitely. I, I see how you can work differently in the spaces that you feel like content is, I guess you kind of alluded to this, but your content that you produce and that you allow yourself to do. Yes, although it's always interesting, there's always crossover. Like even Tilt Factor's been invited to gallery shows. So I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think about it too much. I just make stuff, and it comes out. Some oops, it came out that way. I don't know. <laughs> it's not. It's just gonna. You know, I, I could. I could. You know, be uh, pose some kind of grand attitude about this, um, and you know, oh, my vision. But I. I, I actually just think that uh, that. All the things are, are are meeting a particular kind of conceptual need, like like the the language and the kind of intense study that you can do with text is something that you do in a, you do metaphorically in an installation. You, you, it's a different kind of study. It's a visceral kinds of thing. So so they're they're just different experiences, and um, and I like I don't want to lose any of those experiences. So that's why I do them all and look like a kind of a little bit crazy. Yeah. No. No. Well, except for Player Place. Yeah. Player Place we did because it's really an acting community organization. But no. I mean, I test it. I show it. It's different. I show it to people. I don't have people hacking on it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, following up on what Desiree was saying, I really appreciate um, the talk. I think it's interesting to think about how theory and all, all this thinking um, can be sort of oriented towards, towards design, and I think that's great and totally necessary. Uh, but I've not so much a question, so much as an invitation to make a connection if it doesn't already exist. Um, Fox Rell, who's in the back, I don't on the spot. Um, but he has, uh, his new book, uh, Phantasmal Media, is exactly on sort of how do you, how is bias built into systems, specifically computational systems, but I think it's very, very related to here. In fact, in his first chapter, he has um, he cites this Clark study. I don't know if you're familiar with from the from the 50s, which is exactly the same thing as the CNN, yeah, where yeah. they basically showed um, uh, the dolls, children yeah. Of, of yeah, of dolls, yeah, children of different races. You know, here's a black doll, a white doll. Which one looks nice? Which one is bad? You know, and how do you 
sort of, um, and which one, yeah, which one looks nice, which one is bad, and how do you sort of um, think about that um, unconscious bias and how it operates? And so, yeah, I was just wondering if know each other or like <laughs> we do because it's like it's like it's the the the, we are of one yeah, mind. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not really, but we are of complementary mind, I think, in exactly. this. Yeah, yeah. Both yeah. And yeah. 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 yeah, there's like there's like three of us or something. I don't know, maybe there's five of us. There's half of most of them are in this room probably. <laughs> there's a few stragglers. But yeah. Yes, thank you. Good good connection making. Okay. Yeah, um, I was wondering if uh, seems to be a lot of board games and card games nowadays and less digital games. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there a strategy there or is there a reason why mm -hmm. work has had that trajectory? Yeah, it's it's a strange reason. You know, anytime as an artist, I don't know if 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 anyone has done art practice for a while, but you know, the studio you have really affects what you make. Um, if you have space, you know, like I was just in Italy at this artist residency, which was awesome, and they gave me this massive studio. So I started designing these really big things, right? Um, and, uh, and at Dartmouth, there's a pretty big history of board games, card games, and this kind of thing. And, but also, I, have, I don't have any grad students, so I don't have any programmers, really. I don't have any, I, it's really a grassroots kind of effort. So I can get to paper prototyping, and then if it's, if it's a, a low budget or something, you know, like Metadata Games is a completely digital project. It has some nice funding on it. Um, some of this stuff isn't as, you know, as well-funded. But So some of it's funding, some of it's access. Um, Kind of having the conversation is really important, and we found with Grow a Game, you know, this we started the first set of Grow a Game came, it was just a values written on cards that we talked about at a, at a, at a, at a meeting at NYU the, in 2006. So, so, and 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 then it turned into this by 2008. People. We have an iPad version of Grow a Game. People still like the cards. They want to talk. They want to lean over. They want to share. They want to fight. Having something in your hand that you know is an interesting kind of talking stick or something. And and you see that with pox and zombie pox and these kinds of you know the the efficacy of of the digital and the non digital. So I and also in a lot of the low income schools I work in. You know, you can't really have 10 kids and a network thing. Play. It's just a huge, but you can get this and they can play it, you know, during lunch. So there's, there's some physical constraints. Um, and then there's, you know, I, I never, I came from a digital design background. I never designed a card game or a board game. I mean, except as a kid, you know, making kids ones. But I never did that professionally until I, I'm, I've been at Dartmouth. And then I'm like... I'm a board game guy. I have a, I have a warehouse, <laughs> you know. I have a warehouse and a truck and like the whole. I mean, I, I, I yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. It's pretty. It's so heavy. There, I would recommend smaller games, just <laughs> half size. Yeah. Um, oh wait, um, this man is. Yeah. Can I go with him first? Sorry, Thank you already you had more. Sharing and for our research and your amazing games. But I'm a little concerned about you. You talked before that the Buffalo will never be supposed to play in a party. So, is it possible to, like, people buy your game or let the game get out of the state of only played in classes because people they receive bombardment and give a large amount of influence with the mass media and other face-to-face -face communication about cultural bias or everything yeah. else, but yeah. 
they can only play the game once or twice in the lab environment. Right. Yes, yes. So, so yes. So, a lot of times, people in in like they'll they'll make like schools will make it available to kids, but a lot of people are just buying them as products. That's a problem. That's a. That's, I'm telling you my whole life story of like how to do this board game thing. But when I when I created this, okay, this Grow a Game Cards was originally part of the Values at Play project from from National Science Foundation funding from uh, like in the in the 2000s of something. I don't remember what the years were. And I we produced these cards. They had an interesting effect. And I went to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco. And I was running around the Game Developers Conference. I had a stack of them. And <laughs> like Eric Zimmerman does at his anyway, if you know Eric, um, we. You know, we're always carrying these games around. It was like our bags are filled with games. So um, these are much heavier. So I had these game packets, and I saw my friend, you know, because I was work, I, I work professionally in the game industry. I'd see a friend. I'm like, hey, I have this cool tool. You want to try this? Yeah. And then someone else was like, I hear you have these cards. I want to try these cards. And I gave the, all the cards out because we had grant funding to do it. And then I was like, well, I'm going to give these away for free. So I gave them all away, and I was like, yay altruism, this is awesome, we're just making things and everyone gets to use them. And then I turned around and I saw a girl game pack in the garbage can. So someone had asked me for one and someone had thrown it away. And I thought, oh, if people had paid for that, they wouldn't have done it. <laughs> right? Even $5, you wouldn't have thrown it away. So I had to change, I, I became a capitalist, and not really, but I, I'm kidding. But I became someone who had to understand this unfortunate fact. I had to give up my utopian free-for-all thing. I really did. There's this weird, you know, psychology. There's this psychological value about paying for something, and it, and it breaks my heart. Like, it, 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 it crushes my soul, really, that I can't just, like, give these away. But I, I also, you know, don't want to waste paper, if anything. <laughs> So, so, so they are for sale. They're for sale at cost. So, you know, we try, you know, we sell them through this online retailer on common goods. But I would love to be able to figure out an interesting model for this that still supports the project. And what I'm certainly, certainly, I have determined, and I, I think I can say this authoritatively after, after several board games, um, four or five board games now, um, that this is not a way to fund your research lab. They, they are expensive, heavy, they, they do not make money. Um, I have a lot of colleagues who are like, I want to make board games. I'm like, good luck, because this is, this is, but they do interesting things, but they're really a pain. Digital games are much easier, but they have these things. We don't know what they're doing. We need to understand them, and we need to do them better. So, so all of that baggage comes in. So I agree with you. We need, we need versions of this kind of stuff all over for people. We need to have the same kind of approach for parents. You know, I'm kind of doing a family case study on Facebook where I'm looking at what my relatives say about some of the younger relations. You know, she's so cute. She's so pretty. This girl's, you know, posting pictures. No one has ever called a member of my family, um, I'm thinking of a, like a younger member of my family, um, uh, extended family, clever as a girl. Or, oh, she, she's smart, or she's interested in school today, or none of this. It's, it, so these, and if you brought it up, they, it would take a long time. I, I, I had a mini workshop recently, and I was working with artists and novelists, and no one really understood consciously that bias, you know, even by saying, oh, you look beautiful today, you wouldn't say that to a man. What? Oh, wow, I never thought of that. And these are educated people. So it, just even breaking the ice on just these very small, everyday, you know, if you were political, you would call them microaggressions. If you're, if you're, if you're not political, you would call them biases or, or, or frameworks, you know. Um, 
these are these are these are they, they we need everybody to be thinking about this or at least conscious race and and you know the, the the scary thing is there's a really great report called why so few in 2010 which is available as a PDF it was published by the it's promoted by the National Science Foundation published with their funding and it's a meta study of 30 years of of reasons why women don't go into STEM and it's amazing. We know we know all the reasons. Like the reasons are listed and listed. We can read them, read them again. You can hang out with them. You can have coffee with these reasons. And like the reasons are are clear. That doesn't mean any change happened. This is like you know information must be free, but only when we interpret it and use it. Is it you know it's it's this kind of thing. So um, so we these are an attempt to activate that data. This is an attempt to take what we know and move it somewhere and get something shifting. Um, and sometimes you know so we've been really lucky that things have actually shifted. You know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think we'd get any data. You know, I have this postdoc who's a really great postdoc for psychologist, and um, I have two now. But uh, Jeff, um, Jeff Kaufman, uh, you know, I'm like, I don't think this is. You know, how could this work? This isn't. This is just like a silly game. You know, <laughs> I mean, I have these, you know, wonders as well, and then I can start to see the changes too. So, so it, you never know. You have to have a risk of a leap of faith. Uh, but one thing you have as as people in an academic institution is you have access to other people and you have you can do studies and you have some time and it's what people out in the world you know people you know you're working a nine nine to nine job <laughs> you <laughs> you don't have time to do a study on how your software is working you don't have time to like really sit and understand that you know and you wish you did and you wish someone would know more about what you make and I think that well, that's our job here. Fox. Thank you. Good to see you. So one point that stood out to me was the CNN study. And it seemed there was some difference, of course, from the original. And what stood out was that they tried to show a kind of symmetry. There was this line around the point of a jump cut. Uh, and of course, the groups are biased against each other. Where the original Kenneth and Mimi Park study was looking at students' biases against uh, their own group. And, yes. And so, one thing that that raises for me is you can think about well, who is a CNN article designed for? Is it to give a kind of reassurance of yeah. that a bias is, is symmetrical? And what that raised for me related to the projects that we shown is uh, that when you when you design the, these systems about bias, uh, how do you? How do you think about the issue of the different need of the different uh, participants? So, for example, people who are subjects of biases, people who want to recognize and change their own biases, or people who are resistant to change. So, are the games targeted towards one of those groups, all of those groups, and, and how do you think about that in the design process? OMG. Um, uh, okay. First of all, I want to just do this little moment. There's a nut, there are several videos of Anderson Cooper. I, Anderson I am. I, I'm not really a fan, but. I, okay, he. Oh, oh my God. So this, this does same same race bias. Can you show me the dumb child? Show me the nice child. So, okay. I. Yes. Okay. 
Yeah. Now, I, I, I do have to say, I showed that video to a large entertainment company while I was visiting a large entertainment company. And the response I got was an indication that we needed to play these, these games. Um, it was like, well, that's not really bias. I'm like, well, yes, that is. <laughs> and I mean, higher ups at many, as you, I mean, I'm I'm speaking to the choir here, but but the, this this wasn't even impactful to a lot of people because it wasn't even seen as bias. Um, to answer your other question really quickly, and I know people probably want to you know do various kinds of things that they do um, uh, after talks, but there's a, there's something I wanted to show. <laughs> There's something I did want to show. I, I cut all this out because I'm like, I'm not going to talk about this. Um, but somewhere in here, I have, uh, maybe I did cut it out. Uh, I did want to, uh, I think I cut it out. Um, I have a, a little formula. Uh, maybe I cut it out because someone told me it was a trade secret. Uh, anyway, <laughs> there's a little formula. But, okay, big picture, we're not specifically, especially with things that are difficult to target, we're not targeting a particular, you're more biased, you're less biased. We haven't had to do that yet because they seem, you know, it seems to work. Uh, when we get this to a computational system where you have an online way, we can actually track different people's starting points and we can track through time. Um, I think we're going to have a different, we can actually target certain kinds of things a little bit more specifically. That said, um, they, this, this game in particular puts players, and we have a little formula for this, into positions of being the perpetrator of bias, into positions where they're an observer of bias, into positions where they heard about a situation of bias, or in no bias, right? Or, and, and also there is a, a, a meta category, which is it's biased if some people hear it, it's not biased if other people hear it. For example, you, um, the room, you're playing this game, you get a card and it says, uh, you won first place at the science fair, right? To some people, it's like, yeah, I won first place at the science fair. You might happen to be a white male. <laughs> if you are hearing that from a, a disadvantaged place, you might have a split-second conscious or unconscious thought of like, oh, science fairs, you know, that, that, this, is, this is stereotype threat, right? So generally stereotype threat is working in an unconscious way. You guys know about stereotype threat, pretty much. Not everyone, not everyone. Do I have to go on the stereotype threat? Really quick. Um, so you know that there are, there's lots of research which suggests um, and, and proves that uh, stereotype threat is, uh, is, is where one's performance is affected by a larger cultural stereotype of one situation. So for example, if, I, if I'm going to give you all a test, and I walk into the room and I'm like, okay, it's a math test, this will be easy. You know, girls have been improving on this for years. If you are a girl and I just said that, your math score will now go down significantly. If I walk into the room and I say, hey, we're doing a math test, it's going to be fun, you know, everyone loves math. And it's like, um, uh, we're having an after, we're having an after, uh, after program for, um, for uh, minority students just, just, uh, just out of the way. Even if you didn't have anything to, to do with talking about the math test, it's still a stereotype threat. But this works positively and negatively, right? So, for example, if Asian Americans are told, hey, uh, everyone knows Asians are good at math, Asian American scores go up. 
this is helpful <laughs> for that moment. Um, so, so we have these stereotypes built into culture. It's proven, it's, it's horrific that more instructors, for example, don't really understand these things because you say inadvertent things all the time that invoke these stereotype threats and we just don't even know. Um, so that's going on. Um, and, 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 and I think that if we could, if we could begin to unpack some of this stuff and get people understanding the stereotypes threat happens. I mean, you know, um, most of the people in this room, if you've gotten here and you are from a disadvantaged group, you probably have learned this already because you have gotten here and you have figured this out or someone has helped you. I mean, it's, it's really a, a position of privilege needs to understand and kind of deprivilege uh, themselves in this, in this process. So that's a long way of saying, but, 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 but you hear things differently. So I, you know, you got, you got the best place in the, in the science fair is going to sound different to different people because of who goes into science fairs is the stereotype and that's the stereotype threat. So we use those things. We use them, use them. And we had some interesting data also that I did want to share um, that when we pulled all the silly things out, we have a, like a ratio of how much fun non-biased stuff that goes in. If you pull out like, oh I waved maniacally at my friend and it's not her. Um, or these kinds of just dorky, awkward moments. I got gum stuck in my hair, my shoe fell off, whatever. Um, if you remove that and you just have the bias stuff, the effect drops. You don't get the effect anymore. So this should help us get away from preachy, um, we're going to have mandatory discrimination training today. You know, like this, that's an automatic... That's an automatic lack of success right there. You just, like, by saying we have, like, multicultural training or women at work, like, automatically, automatically you've cut the effectiveness of that program. So, um, so oops. <laughs> or, like, women in science, I wonder, you know? Women in CS, I don't know. It's nice to have a women in CS club, but it also triggers stereotypes threats. So it's like a, hee, 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 hee. This is touchy stuff, but really important to know about. Vicky. Going off what you just mentioned, do you think when you take out the fun things, then people sort of put up this barrier, like this is supposed to be educational and I know I'm doing the right thing, so do you think that you're introducing or trying to get people to be more vulnerable to the message? Yes, that's a way of putting it. That's a way of putting it. Good call. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think you don't have your defenses up. You're, You're engaged in the moment and you're completely... You're completely with this material. You, you're, and, and in here, you're in, in a way role-playing or perspective-taking about different situations. And if, if you don't feel like you're being hit over the head or being implicated in some framework, it's, it's fine. And as soon as you feel like, oh, that's about me, I'm fine. I mean, how many people do you know if you went up to them and you said, you know, are you racist? They would say, yes. How many people really? Like, really? I mean, maybe someone would say it as a joke, but really, how many people would say, you know, I am biased against women in science? <laughs> no one actually thinks they're biased, <laughs> right? But we're all, we are, we are somehow, somewhere in my shoe, I've got this bias, you know? So, so and this is just an interesting way of trying to unpack that because asking and confronting that is just, is just has not worked for us yet. You have another, oh, you have another one. I, we have to wrap soon, I think, because people are going to explode. Maybe if there's someone else who did Okay, one more here. Can I interject a short fun point? Yes. Children's Television Workshop invented Cookie Monster, a society to provide fun as part of their curriculum. Everything was research and curriculum oriented, and they were like, if you don't have a really fun character, 
it's just not going to work. And they like sorted this out without testing. They just like that's right. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, we it's it's kind of a no-brainer to people who make good media, I think, but but we're in a situation where a lot of this is a lot of educational games aren't so good, maybe. Zombies <laughs> Zombies work. Zombies work. Okay, quick. Um, so I, can you maybe give some advice, recommendations, suggestions coming from kind of this practitioner, academic, game creator uh, space for those of us who, who do research in games but are not necessarily either inclined to or desiring to be game creators? Like what, I, I have no skill, none, none. In? Uh, making stuff. Okay, that's I, I fine. No, I have no stuff creation. <laughs> skills at all. That's, um, that's totally fine. But I still feel like there should be something I can learn about the research I do from what you, from your process, right? Like, what would you want game academics who don't create to, to maybe learn or adapt or use for their work that, that has been valuable for you being a practitioner, creator, academic? Well, if you're, if, it depends on what kind of, I mean, game studies are such a weird misnomer, right? Because what does that mean? Like, uh, you know, is it about like this kind of idea of cultural studies of games, or is it really a sociological standpoint? I think, I think we have this methodical, methodological kind of, um, in good terms, it would be called um, a, a, mele, a melee, <laughs> but in bad terms, it's a, it's a disaster where no one knows any particular rigorous method and then there's just a disaster happening. So um, I, I've learned a lot by having, I would say collaborate is what I would say. That's the, that's the short answer to this. Collaborate with someone who doesn't do what you do as a student in a class or project, wherever you can find that, because you're going to learn their language, they're going to learn your language, and you're going you're gonna to find a, a new vocabulary. I mean, my whole career has been vocabularies, really, and ways of thinking and frameworks of, like, am I a scientist today? Am I an artist today? Am I a designer today? Like, like those, and, 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 and you don't have to do that. <laughs> but I think you might want to, um, you might want to appreciate and see your own practice by learning about someone else's deeply. Um, and there are plenty of game makers who don't know how to ask research questions, and they're not interested in research questions. They want to make this thing. So if it's really, there are many game makers I know who are like, I wish somebody could study my game. You know how many people ask me to study their game? It's like a lot. So that's an interesting opportunity, I think. It's just like, well, see what happens, and 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 even collaborating. But but it'll teach you something about the way you you think. Like the, working with psychologists on some of these. Um, on some of these rigorous studies, you know, I don't think in terms of randomized control. Now I do actually, but I didn't at one point. I, you know, I thought that I could gather data in a different kind of way, and I, it was perfectly fine to do that at that time. But to answer some of these particular kinds of questions, this kind of process made sense, and I'm really glad I did because now I have data that doctors can listen to. Like it's it's data. It's a kind of data that speaks to a different kind of audience, and and, and it's evidence based. Which is different than a you know, uh, it's just a different kind of data than a humanist critique, you know. And I and I'm fully engaged with humanist critique, <laughs> but I, I, I it's really interesting to have this other handle on on data, and what that means, and and how you can, and and how you can collect it poorly, so that you do not do that. Yeah. 
Just you, one more, one more. You guys are a great audience. I, it's like so loyal and happy and good. Well, I, was, I was at a public school this morning playtesting an educational game, and it was a really kind of crazy moment for me when a girl stopped playing and she raised her hand and came over and said, and asked her, what was up? And she goes, is this game supposed to be educational? <laughs> and I had a backpedal at the first thing because, yes, absolutely, it is supposed to be, but I didn't want to say yes because I feel like that was just like glazed it over. So I, I'm wondering, from your perspective, if you're playtesting something and someone asks you that, do you avoid saying it's educational? Um, and and how, do you, how do you feel about that? And how, yeah. how would you have answered that question if it, if it came up to you? Because it was absolutely an educational game. <laughs> right. That's good. That's one of those painful moments. I had one kid once say to me, like, isn't it a game? No one dies. You know, that kind of, it's just like players, players, players are, you know, awesome. Um, okay. This is interesting. So in, my, in, in, in our playtest culture, we try to not have the key makers of the games on the front line with the people. And they have to hang back because you automatically influence your playtesters, right? So I try to, if, I, if I'm the key design person or my head's been in the most, I stand back. Although I have more experience than a lot of my team about like, kind of you know, hiding my feelings, but I ha have to know that I'm still biased because I'm, you know, with this research. So, so I would, pro I, I, we don't answer questions like that. It, we would say, oh, you know, what do you think? Let us know. Let us know. Tell us what you think and try to flip it. Um, Chuck Kinzer at uh, Columbia did a really great little mini study uh, with the Games and Learning Network where he, um, and Scott probably knows about this, I don't know, um, where he, he, he took a picture of, a, of an action-adventure game, like there's a screenshot, and he had people describe it. And he's like, you know, it, it was just like the framing study. And he said, this is an educational game. Tell us what's happening. This is an action-adventure game. Tell us what's happening. Would you want to play this game? And like, you know, like only 20% of the people wanted to play the educational game, and like 95% of the people wanted to play the, 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 the action-adventure game just because it was said action-adventure game. It's the same photo and the same description of what happened, right? It was just a, a framing. So yes, the framing of the word education is a big no-no. <laughs> yes? I, I ended up just asking her if she was having fun. And she said, well, yeah. And I was like, well, it's just a game. Fun. Good, 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 good. Distract her. <laughs> yes. But this is it's, it's really interesting, you know, and you know, kids play tests. How many times are games played in schools that aren't educational games, right? So the, the, the situation's already loaded um, with a whole bunch of expectations that you had nothing to do with. So, hmm. Hmm. Let's uh, thank you. Thank you.